there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. Immediately following the trip to Edinburgh, everyone in the group was invigorated artistically. So we had a show pitch meeting. A level of sixes method of choosing shows was decidedly democratic, even though Meyer was the artistic director. We'd all gather in a room and pitch show ideas at each other and ultimately vote on which shows we were going to do. In early September, the group gathered in my attic, sat in a circle, and described the individual projects we wanted to do. Kate Hendrickson pitched a show based on a bunch of 1960s pulp porn novels she picked up at a rummage sale. Someone, I can't really remember who, pitched a staged adaptation of the Charles Foster novel, The Lost Weekend. I pitched a silent show set to music about destiny and how our choices become it. Joe, who'd been cast as an understudy in DeHunsverst's Clown Prickison Will Burst, pitched a play he had not yet written, the Dada-inspired Metaluna and the Amazing Science of the Mind Review. Now, on a side note, Joe confessed that he really didn't have any intention of writing Metaluna, but he'd feel stupid not bringing something to the pitch meeting. So, you know, when I came to vote, I, I lobbied hard for it because I love nothing more than an artist, especially Joe, being painted into a corner and having to be amazingly creative to get out of it. So a couple of factors, in addition to the show pitches, were included in our four-hour meeting, namely that Jason and Karen McKee had been cast in Boom Chicago, which was a sketch improv company located in Amsterdam, and would be leaving shortly. So we decided to make Katie Cawson the new artistic director, and then proceeded to put the next wave of shows we were doing together. At the end, it was decided that since my silent show was to be created and written through rehearsals, it was a devised piece, it would be the first on the plate. Following that, we'd work on The Lost Weekend. Phil, Lori, Katie, and Bill Gorgo, a Chicago stand-up who was a friend of Katie's, would work on the script. Then the 60s porn piece. Then, if Joe finished writing his play, we'd do that last. The silent show that I we devised and I directed was entitled The Stink of Destiny. Given that the show was to be entirely without dialogue, I decided to bring in some experts that could work on the movement skills with the ensemble. Joel Jeske, a level six member for exactly one week, and the creator of Clown, 
came in and worked physical comedy with the group, Dave Rozowski, one of the most brilliant improvising artists I've ever met and continues to this day to inspire me, came in and workshopped them on silent character development. And then a friend of Kate's came in and taught us contact improvisation, which is a dance technique in which points of physical contact provide the starting point for movement improvisation and exploration. Yeah, it sounds a little artsy, but it is, and it was cool. For rehearsals, I bring in CDs of instrumental music, classical, jazz, avant-garde, popular, and some, po some opera, and I would have them improvise scenes silently. I quickly discovered my first rule of comedy, anything, no matter how mundane, underscored by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, becomes funny. As we continued this as we continued the twice-weekly development rehearsals, a story began to emerge about the three stages of the same woman's life and her regrets and victories. Katie played her as a little girl with three scenes starting with her first discoveries of gender differences on a beach. The second scene involved her mother beating her and violently scrubbing her body to cleanse her of her impurity, followed by a scene of her dealing with a boy, her desire to connect with him but prevented by her newly acquired shame. The music underscoring this thread was all Ennio Morricone film scores. Lori played the woman in her second stage as a married woman who meets her potential lover, is then caught by her husband who's then killed by her lover, and then in car her incarceration for the murder. This thread was played backwards chronologically and used music from Peter Gabriel's score for The Last Temptation of Christ. Alita played the woman as an old woman in the lightest of the threads. She is at the end of her life uh, no longer in prison, obviously, meets a man in a laundromat and goes on a date with him, which turns out well. And these scenes were underscored by, you guessed it, the Tijuana Brass. Her partner in those scenes was Jeff Hoover, again, one of the funniest dudes ever. Inspired by Orff's oratorio Carmina Burana and its concept of the ever-turning wheel of fate, I cast Kate Hendrickson in the role of Destiny, a sprite-like character that handed over the woman's destiny in form of a conch shell and takes it back at the end of her life. Her music, in addition to the opening strains of Carmina Burana, came from a CD of 1960s lounge music entitled Space Age Pop. All four threads were stitched together, alternating in time and space so that the full picture that this was the story of one woman's life wasn't clear until the final scene. It was a difficult process. I mean, this was a non-verbal piece with a cast of improvisers and writers whose previous successes on stage came from language. And to be fair, Joe, Katie, Lori, Pat, and Alita found great success with the challenge. And they really did. They absolutely shone in the final product. It was the first primarily dramatic piece the ensemble had ever attempted, and it was the first production that wasn't in a bar that I both produced and directed simultaneously. We had a lot of fights during the rehearsal process. I was pushing Phil hard. He was playing the husband who gets murdered, and I wasn't buying his performance. It didn't feel honest. In my relentless pursuit to get him in the right mindset, I directed him to use a recent life experience he had to inform his choices. He just, at that time, caught his own girlfriend cheating on him, and the wound was both deep and fresh. And he, during a rehearsal, when I suggested that, just blew his fucking stack. We talked it over outside, and everything was fine. But it was one of those opportunities where, as a director, in order to get the performance that I wanted, I maybe crossed a line that I shouldn't have and violated a trust in, in Phil 
and it was a lesson that I that I continually as a director had to learn is where that line was further Kate and I discovered that my methods of direction and development for mostly solo pieces as destiny did not mesh in any way with her approach to the work so after about a month of rehearsals where she and I just butted heads and just made no progress whatsoever, I finally asked Joe to work with her to create her scenes. The scenes ended up being really phenomenal, um, but both Kate and I agreed that she and I were artistic oil and vinegar, and so we agreed that uh, in those situations we would try to avoid uh, working in that power dynamic as much as possible. And uh, we also, you know, kind of made a commitment to kind of figure out why it didn't work, which we did eventually. On the production end of things, this was WDP's first prime time show. In off-loop terms, prime time ultimately means that you not only get the 7 to 10 p.m. time slots through the weekend, but you get to control what set and lights are present on the stage. And you also pay for that privilege. We were at Zebra Crossing Theater, which was on Hutchinson, right across the street from the Jewel on Lincoln Avenue. Um, well, they informed me just prior to a build-out that our, their current show was going to extend and that we would be required to perform our show on their set. I calmly, really, I was very calm about it, replied that that was fine, but then I would then require a $400 per week discount on our rental agreement. We went back and forth on this point until they finally gave in and agreed to perform their show on our set. We ended up accommodating them by using some of their set pieces as our own. In spite of the difficulties, the show was very good. And I really did. I was so moved, I cried at the conclusion nearly every performance. The, the ensemble had taken a bit of a battering during the process. Some even discussed the possibility that we maybe should have taken a break after the gargantuan task of Scotland instead of launching immediately into another show. Those discussions did not, however, inspire any such sort of break. Billy Wilder's classic, The Lost Weekend, starring Ray Milland as a struggling writer, unhappy with the reality of his life, yet unable to stop drinking to escape it. What's this? Eh? It's whiskey, isn't it? How'd it get there? I don't know. I suppose it dropped from some cloud or someone was bouncing it against this wall and it got stuck there. What you don't understand, all of you, is that I've got to know what's around, that I can have it if I need it. I can't be cut off completely. He wants to be alone with that bottle of his. It's all he gives a hang about. He's a sick person. I assure you, I'm not a thief. I'm not a thief. Should have seen her come in here last night looking for you. Her eyes all rainy and the mascara all washed away. Give me a drink. That's an awful high-class young lady. Tell her something. Tell her I'm sick. Tell her I'm dead. For three years, they couldn't talk me out of you. I was the only one that really understood you. I knew there was a core of something. Well, there is a core, and now I know what it is. A sponge. And to soak it full, you'll do anything that's ruthless, selfish, dishonest. I asked you not to make a scene. Oh. What hospital is this? Alcoholic ward. <laughs> Come on, I need that liquor. I want it and I'm going to get it, understand? I'm going to walk out of here with that quarter rye, one way or another. We're both trying. You're trying not to drink and I'm trying not to love you. Winner of four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Screenplay, The Lost Weekend. Next up on the WNEP Level 6 plate was the adaptation of the Billy Wilder film and Charles Jackson novel, The Lost Weekend. 
Katie was directing, and she grabbed a super talented cat named Tony Vesner to assist and direct. The adaptation was super good. It was tight, it was focused, using both the novel and the screenplay for inspiration. The writers, Bill Gorgo, Phil Ehrensberg, Laurie McLean, and Jason Meyer, created an alternate history for the character of Don Burnham. In our version, the novel The Lost Weekend had been written and a character named Cappy is interviewing all the main players in the story to assess whether or not the events actually took place the way Burnham wrote about them, kind of like a pre-James Fry examination. It seemed to all of us that Pat Carton was a lock for the lead role. Not only was Packy a superb actor, he really was, uh, he was the right age for it and had dealt with a bit of binge drinking himself. He was so convinced that he had it in the bag it started to rub Katie the wrong way. He got a little entitled about it, and by the time we held auditions, Katie seemed to be looking for anyone but Pat to play the role. She ultimately cast a dinner theater actor, Andy Simon, who none of us knew in the role, which was a first for us because we'd been casting from our ensemble most of the time. Carton was devastated. His only just desserts were that Simon was woefully ill-equipped for the challenge, uh, he couldn't memorize his lines, and he blew lines. No matter how many times Katie got up his ass to learn the lines, he simply couldn't do it, in no particular order. And he purposely set himself apart from the cast, and he made a big deal that he wasn't a part of the improv crowd. It did not endear him much to a cast that included Ed Smarin, Paul Grandi, myself, Jay Succo, and Laurie McLean. He didn't help matters by being of limited ability and botching his monologues during almost every single performance. The booth was visible to the cast, but not the audience. They were in the back of the house. Bob Wilson and Dave Wiviot, Lights and Sound, brought signs. One said air ball. The other had a basketball hitting a rim with, a, with brick written under it. And they would lift them up for the cast to see every time Simon blew a line, which was frequent. By the time we got to this show, Adam Langer, who's a critic from the Chicago Reader, had bashed four of our shows in a row, essentially for the same reason that, why would anyone do this show in the first place? I'd had it in my head that we would eventually win him over, but I'd given up. Uh, after four, it was, it was time to call, and I decided I wouldn't let Langer review any other WDP productions. Of course, Langer was sent to review The Lost Weekend. So opening night in costume, I played Burnham's long-suffering brother, Wick. I waited at the front door. It was raining. Langer showed up, and I told him he was not welcome to see the show. He pretty much lost his shit. Now, granted, it was raining, and I didn't let him indoors. So the next day I get a call and I'm told that I, I can't decide who reviews our shows. I counter with the argument that I can't decide who reviews our shows, but I can definitely decide who does not review our shows. The next evening, Larry Bomber came out and gave the show a very positive notice. Langer was never assigned to review for us again. Now, the last Lost Weekend was a late night rental, and we thus had to accommodate our show design around the existing set, a wall of approximately 30 tires. Tires. And Bob figured out a way to mask the wall with carefully placed blacks and flats, and we managed to make the space look like a seedy bar complete with ugly red bar stools that Bob and I lifted from a closing down supply warehouse, with permission, of course, from the construction guys tearing the place apart. Closing night, Andy had really rubbed us all the wrong way. He was, you know, he was, I mean, it was not a great thing. He was the lead role, but he was a pain in the ass. He looked down on everybody. He was kind of angry because he couldn't get his lines down and was made fun of routinely for it. So ultimately, I decided to play a prank on him. 
So when we were in Scotland, I took Alita's camera one morning and I took a picture of my nuts and didn't tell her it was on the roll. Needless to say, by that point, the picture had made its rounds and I, I finally had a copy. At one point in the show, Andy had to go to his typewriter and open the case, turn to me and get paper and try to break his alcohol-induced writer's block. It was a very highly emotional moment. So before the show, I took rubber cement and pasted the picture of my balls in the typewriter case. When he opened it, everyone in the cast, who the way it was staged here, they were all sitting on bar stools upstage the whole show, reading the book um, while it was being acted out. They all saw it, and everyone started to giggle uncontrollably. Simon kind of freaked out, but he kept himself in character. And that night, he was suddenly part of the cast. He hung out with us. We laughed about things. He thought that was so funny. He, you know, get, and it really made me wish I'd done it in the beginning of the run because he was suddenly like, there was camaraderie where there none had existed and it all just came from me playing a prank on him. The show was very successful. And after that run, we set our sights on the 1960s porn novel idea. Well, the challenge in Kate Hendrickson's P, her, her pitch became how to communicate graphic sex without actually having on stage graphic sex. Everyone took a stab at a short 20-minute play. Um, Kate gave everybody a book and everybody wrote a play based on the book she gave them. The ones written by Lori, Alita, and my, myself were chosen, and Katie, Lori, and Alita were chosen to direct the three. Jason played the part of Monty Le Grosjean, which is kind of paraphrases, it's, it's Mount the Fat Leg in French, who was sort of a grimy, sleazy, Rod Serling MC for the evening. And the show was entitled Monte Le Grosjean Presents Sex et une Femme and featured almost everyone in the ensemble plus a few more. We marketed the show with a poster of a woman's naked torso and the idea that tickets were $12 a piece or 18 for you and a sexual partner. Each piece had its own look and feel, and although we had to contend with being the late-night show in the set that wasn't ours, we really did a pretty good job embracing the strange plywood mountainscape background, with the exception of Phil goring himself one night in an unsaved mountaintop corner, and the night a flat fell during the show, and Pat Carton repaired it silently with a screwdriver while the cast on stage made improvised comments about the flat falling. Bob was the technical director, and the three directors, Katie, Laurie, Alita, had a hard time contending with his slower, more methodical approach to lighting design. Bob was good, but he, what, he took his time. He moved, but he moved at his pace. So there was a lot of bitching about this at the bar afterwards during Tech Week that bordered on ridiculous, but otherwise, seemed, things seemed more amiable than during Stink of Destiny, and the ensemble was performing well together. We opened on Joe's birthday, Cinco de Mayo, and everyone got Joe and each other dirty gifts from places like the Pleasure Chest and Taboo Taboo. I ended up getting Joe for his birthday a latex battery-operated vibrating vagina. It was a bit horrifying, but we laughed the whole night about it. From what I understand, Joe used it once and then discarded it. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a hoot. Um, I ended up getting Jason a glow-in-the-dark cock ring, which one night he decided to perform the show with it on. There was some swelling, and it caused him so much pain that in the middle of the show, Kate, who they were dating at that point, was prying it off his nutstack backstage while the show was going on. All right, the show, the reviews were terrible. Chris Jones, who was then the critic for New City, 
called it sex et tum bore. Um, but the sexual angle packed with the house, packed the house every night. I mean, everybody, that place was packed all the time. Everybody loved it. And I can't think of anyone in the ensemble that didn't have a great time doing the show. Monte Le Grosjean presents Sex et Tum Femme represented the final production before the test of time and volunteerism began to fray the edges of the group. We still had a couple more kick-ass shows in us, but the opportunities that others were getting combined with the weight of casting in-house regardless of ability started to sap the fun and idealism out of everyone. We'd been in the back of a bar, we'd put up a show in Scotland, we'd had three artistic successes in a row. We really had no idea that we were two shows away from falling apart. We sat in a large booth in the back area of the Golden Apple on Southport and Lincoln. Joe, Bob, Alita, Jason, Katie, and I were to determine who is going to direct Metaluna and the Amazing Science of the Mind Review by Joe James. Now, a month before, we had held one of our infamous post-mortem evaluations on Monte Legrosjean. Now, the way it worked was I would give out uh, an anonymous form for everybody to fill out about their experience with the director, the show, the production, all the aspects. And anybody could say, because it was anonymous, anybody could say anything they wanted to. And then we would find a, a third party who would take all those and rewrite them, you know, make them typed out, take out personal comments that, that would isolate who said it, mix up all the comments so that you got a really anonymous but generous uh, helping of uh, opinion. Well, Bob had taken some pretty awful hits in this particular one. The evaluation, uh, like I said, was set up to allow everyone in the company to voice their opinions. And the first one we ever did was for the Armageddon Radio Hour. And I took such a severe beating from the cast and crew, I sat up in my attic and cried in anger and frustration. Well, this time it was for Bob. You know, it was all Bob's term. And in the evaluation, it was strongly suggested that we get rid of Bob. The frustration over his slow pace during the last production being sort of a deal breaker for some. Bob sat quietly as we read through the form and he took hit after hit, a humiliation that I don't wish on anyone, but one that I'd been through so I understood. Later Bob came to me. He was pissed. I think it should just I think I should just quit. Now I understand. I mean I can't believe the things they said. I looked at Bob. Well, you've got two choices. I had to face this a couple years ago. You either reject the criticism and leave, and just be pissed over the unfairness of it all, what a bunch of fuckers everybody is, or you can take the criticism and prove them wrong. Make sure that in all the criticism you, criticism you get in the future, at least it will be about different things. Learn from it and smile, huh? Yeah, I said, uh, yeah, those are your choices. Well, Bob's chose to stick around. But now he had something to prove. Back to the golden apple, I looked up for my greasy cheese omelet. I think Bob should direct it. I think it's about time he took the stick. He's been working with Joe and Joel in the Soiree Dada thing, and that seems to be going well. And this, I'm going to quote, this is from Joe Jane's recollections of the thing. Quote, In the fetal days of WNP, before it was WNP, I experimented with what I was then calling performance comedy. Somewhere around 1992 or 93, without really being able to articulate it, I was trying to deconstruct typical sketch comedy into finding humor in the moments of odd performance art type pieces. I think I described it as Sesame Street for adults. 
Even did a short show called Floyd and Mimi with Don Hall, Jimmy Rhodes, and Mimi Meckett. It was fun, but it didn't develop at anything. In 1995, I became an understudy for a popular Chicago show called Clown, Prickus, and We Burst. The show was created by Joel Jeske, Kevin Sherman, Bruce Green, and Dave Otto Schmidt. While in and of itself it was a brilliantly dark, evil piece of work, it also had a life off the stage. The guys billed themselves as a European clown troupe. They did interviews in costume and always spoke in German accents. They promoted a whole fictionalized history for themselves. The company and the great director who silently directed them with hand gestures from a room outside the theater and never watched them perform. The show was messy, bloody, violent, and fun as hell to perform. We all had to develop our own unique clown persona. I was Hugo Kloppet, who tended with, to all his personal hygiene needs with a straight razor, only ate oranges, and played ukulele. During the rehearsal process, Joel began to talk to me about the origins of the clown show and Dada. After Clown, Prickus, and Reverse closed, he and I began to work on a series of Dada pieces. He took the lead, introducing me to sound poems and simultaneous poems. He came up with the name Soiree Dada. We performed our first show as a duo in the back room of Sheffield's in an open mic night. For any hardcore Soiree Dada fans, that's where the infamous number seven premiered. After that show, Joel brought two more people in, Circus Shalevsky and Bob Wilson. Circus had been another understudy of the clown show. I'm not sure how Joel knew Bob, except that Bob was also part of WDP. I began to write Dada pieces like a motherfucker, some of my favorites being Death Eating Celery, Dead Men Don't Talk, and The Frog Prince. Writing Dada pieces opened up a valve in my head. I love to write Dada. There's no wrong way to write a Dada piece. You can let utter nonsense flow out of your head. You can bang on your computer keyboard upside down. You can let your cat walk across your keyboard. You can cut pictures and words out of magazines and books and paste them willy-nilly on paper. We ran Soiree Dada over the summer of 1996, performing at a few different venues. Joel was having internal issues with the boys from Clown, so this was developed as a co-production between them and WNEP. That was Joe's recollection of the experience. So at that point, I was kind of like, well, Bob's in there, so why not put the driving stick in his hands? That was my perspective. Bob was stunned, but this was the opportunity he'd been waiting for. And he jumped on this shit. It was the most animated I think I'd ever seen him since I'd known him. Everybody else was stunned as well. No one wanted to repeat of the evaluation night, so they all reluctantly agreed. That night, I got calls from everyone expressing their grave concerns. My response was for them to call Bob and express their concerns to him. Ultimately, Bob was named the director of Joe's Dada play. Circus Shalevsky was asked to be the assistant director as well as part of the cast. And away we went. In two weeks, I'll tell the tale of one of the most significant plays in the company's 20-year history, as well as, well as why we, the mention of Metaluna on a, on a, in a theater for us was more ominous than saying Macbeth. In the meantime, we go to tattoo number five next week and some time with the extraordinary profane Charles Bukowski. Until then, thanks for listening. 
Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiar journeys. Thank you.